And we are in the book of Acts uh, for one final sermon before we take a uh, break for the Advent season. Next week we'll begin a four-part series to consider the incarnation from uh, Hebrews chapter 1. But for now, the first 20 chapters of Acts chapter 19. Page 928, if you are following along in the Pew Bible. This is God's word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Thus far, the reading of God's word, while you still have your Bibles open, I hope you keep them open, the whole sermon, but let's turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, William Blake was a... English poet. He wasn't really famous during his lifetime, the late 18th, early 19th century, but he did write a poem in 1804 that, uh, after his death, became very famous. We know it by the name Jerusalem. Um, Quite popular in the Church of England, and it's sort of like a um, quasi-British anthem. Um, Actually, one of the, the hymns that we sing 
um, O love of God, how strong and true. If you look at, in our hymnal at the bottom right hand, you'll see that it has music written by George Perry, and, um, and the tune for that is called Jerusalem. Well, that music was actually originally written to this poem by William Blake, and that poem, Jerusalem, opens with these lines. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? Now, what is William Blake referring to? He's referring to an old uh, um, English uh, folk story, folklore, that said a young Jesus who was accompanied by Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who does come into the gospel accounts uh, in terms of the burial of Jesus. But before that, back when Jesus was, you know, adolescent, preteen, this Joseph, a tin merchant, took him on a trip with him uh, to the southwest of England, and they visited the town Glastonbury. And uh, so that's what this, this poem, this hymn, is about. Did those feet, the feet of Jesus, in ancient time, walk upon England's mountain green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures Scene. Well, historians reject that, that account out of hand, and it does sound ridiculous even to us that anybody could believe such a thing. Uh, we have no reason to believe that Jesus ever traveled uh, to the island, to England. We also have good reason to conclude that Jesus never traveled to Ephesus, and that's where we find Paul in Acts chapter 19. And yet Paul says something to the contrary in a verse we might have overlooked or not considered to be terribly significant in Ephesians chapter 2. So you've turned there. I trust. I heard some pages ruffling. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 17. Paul says this, And he came, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near who, who came, Paul? Well, verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's talking about Jesus, verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 17, and he came and he preached to you. What's Paul talking about here? Is this a William Blake moment? Did he get caught up in some folklore thinking that Jesus traveled to Ephesus when that never happened? Well, what Paul is actually saying is that when he preached, when Paul preached, Christ preached. Uh, This is a significant uh, moment in redemptive history, Acts 19 for sure, but it's also significant in our Reformed understanding of the authority of God's word, the primacy we place on preaching, the premium we place on preaching, because of what Paul says in Ephesians 2 about his preaching there, that when he preached, Christ preached. He says something similar in Romans 10, that you can't believe unless you hear him preaching, him being Jesus, not of him, of who they preach about, but actually you hear him, Romans chapter 10. And so that means that in real preaching, when the word of God is declared, it's not so much just a thus saith the preacher moment, but much more importantly, it's a thus saith the Lord moment. The second Helvetic confession summarizes it succinctly. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, I think it should excite you all the more to come to church and to hear preaching. Because you're not coming to hear Jonathan. I don't have really anything that interesting to say, to say after all. I wouldn't, I wouldn't cross the street to hear me preach. 
But if it means you're coming to hear Jesus, well, that is well worth your time. And not only that, but if it's true that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is himself proclaiming from the pulpit, well, then that means we should be ready to change, to submit. Now, some were in Ephesus, as we're going to see, some were not. So Christ, he does come to Ephesus through the ministry of Paul. And we're going to narrow in on four different groups that, uh, that encounter him in the first half of that chapter. And we want to think carefully about where we would situate ourselves in these four different groups, the four different types of people that we read about, because Christ and his kingship comes to bear upon all of them. Christ and his kingship comes to bear upon you. Christ has come today to Kalamazoo. Uh, he's being heard in dozens of churches that have opened up the Bible and, and some weak minister has climbed into the pulpit and he's preaching. Christ has come to Kalamazoo. What's that going to mean for you? What does he have to say to us? What does he have to say to you? Well, let's look at what happens here in this chapter. Uh, like I said, four, we could say there are four groups of people, four types of people. And the first group we find in, in the first few verses we could define as the ignorant. The ignorant. Now, I don't mean that in an offensive way, a condescending way, but simply to acknowledge that this group of a dozen men, which we find in uh, the first uh, seven verses, uh, they didn't have a complete knowledge of the gospel. They were ignorant in that sense. They are earnest, God-fears, and the end of verse 1 even refers to them as disciples. Uh, But they're clearly not disciples in the way we commonly use that word because they didn't follow Jesus. They were more likely disciples of John the Baptist. They followed John the Baptist. Um, Paul apparently can sense that they, when he meets them, that they don't have the full picture. And so he asks this leading question to them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, as he expects it, no. Uh, they say, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that they, they didn't have any idea that there was the Spirit of God or anything like that. Um, good disciples of John would know his message, which was, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So they knew of the Holy Spirit. Literally, this is saying, we didn't know that the Holy Spirit was here, that he's arrived. This group of men were then stuck in a time between the times. That's what it is to... To follow John the Baptist, he was the last, the final great Old Testament prophet. He's kind of also the first New Testament prophet. He's this, he kind of occupies this, this space between old and new. And so to follow him meant they weren't Christians, but they weren't Jews either. They're kind of floating in this undefined space of religion. And so Paul instructs them. They followed this man, John, who said, more is to come, and yet they didn't know that that more had arrived. And so Paul says, no, the one he pointed to is Jesus. And what does it say? What's their response in verse 5? On hearing this, they were baptized. In other words, they believed what Paul said, and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they, as a sign of their belief and as a continuing sign of God's working through the early church, there's this sort of mini Pentecost that happens again. The Spirit descends upon them. <coughs> uh, this, is, this is great faith on the part of this group of a dozen men. And great humility, if you think about it, uh, that they are willing to be taught. 
They're ignorant. They don't have the full picture, but they're willing to let it be filled in for them, right? Because here's Paul, this kind of stranger, is coming. He's saying everything that you believe is it's kind of wrong. You don't have the whole picture. Um, you, he, Paul is saying to them that they're, they haven't actually been baptized yet, not in the real sense. Their biblical theology is off, and they don't even... Um, they can't really claim themselves as believers because they haven't believed on Christ. They could have been really offended and said, get out of here. Don't, you know, we were fine without you, Paul. We had our own thing. We, we were all getting along. But instead, because he reasons with them from the word and they're willing to hear the word, they grow in their understanding. That's where we all need to be because we're all ignorant of, of, of something. We do not yet know as we are known. Um, and so we need to grow in the knowledge and the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter says in Second Peter. We all need to be willing to grow, to change, no matter what the consequences might be. Because we might hold on to some beliefs that if challenged, and if we change those beliefs, would change some things in our lives. Maybe change the circles that we find ourselves in. Maybe change the way people look at us or people interact with us. Maybe it would mean we lose some friends or lose some, some social capital. We need to be willing to grow no matter what the cost is. If we hold God's word as authoritative, then we need to be prepared to let it redirect our lives, redirect our view. The inerrancy, that means without error, the infallibility means the same thing. The inerrancy, the infallibility, the inspiration and the authority of the scripture has to be our starting point as believers. Not just as a church, certainly as a church, but even individually as believers. If we don't start there, if we don't stand on that, we won't stand at all. And this is where these brothers were willing to stand on the authority of God's word. And so these dozen... Uh, pre-Christian men who become Christians, they can be contrasted with the second group we find in Acts 19, which we will call the adamant. So we had the ignorant, now we have the adamant, and that is those who are, we learn in verse 9, are stubborn and continue in unbelief. And it's the Jews in the synagogue in Ephesus. Paul had passed through Ephesus in chapter 18, and the Jews encountered him, and they said, will you please come back and teach us? And he says, if the Lord wills, I'll come back. Well, the Lord is willed, and he's back. And he preaches there in the synagogue for three months, and yet they don't budge in their belief, right? Same thing is happening as happened with that first group. Paul comes in and he says, you kind of got it all wrong. That's not what the word of God is teaching. The first group was willing to change. The second group is not. They are not willing to let the word of Christ redirect them. After three months, they're fed up. And so what does Paul do? He follows and he fulfills God's redemptive historical pattern, which is... That the gospel comes to uh, Jews first and then to Greeks. And so he abandons the synagogue and instead he preaches the gospel in this public hall where any could hear him. He goes there during the day, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Um, something like a, a, um, a community college, we could think of it. This, this word for hall is the same word for school. And uh, he, he, he rents a room there, um, gets, gets permission to preach. To preach there, and that's where he establishes himself for two years. That's where the whole city hears the gospel, Jews and Greeks. That's where, that's why Paul can say in Ephesians two, he came and he preached peace to you, you who were far off, Gentiles, and you who are near, Jews. Everybody heard the gospel, 
But this should sober us up what happens here, what Paul's response is to the stubbornness of the Jews. Because we learn here there is a time where God will give us up to our own stubbornness. Verse 9, it says, Paul withdrew from them. But as we've already established, it's more than Paul leaving them, right? It's not that Paul withdrew from it. It's that, the, it's that Christ himself, the word of Christ, was, was withdrawn from them. Christ and his living word departs from them. And so that means if you show a repeated, an adamant, a, a callous um, disinterest in God's word, he will eventually distance himself from you. And you don't want to be in that situation. So the second group, those who are stubborn and continue in unbelief, they are adamant in their unbelief, and they do not care about God's word. The next group we encounter is seemingly more interested in, in Christ, but not because of his word, but because of the power they hope they can wield uh, by, by, uh, by using him. And so we're going to, let's call this third group the fraudulent, right? They're, they're fakes, and they're represented by the sons of Sceva, uh, verse 14, um, the sons of Sceva, they want to claim the power of Christ without having any relationship to Christ. It's an odd scene, to say the least. And even Luke acknowledges that. If you look at verse 11, look at verse 11. Luke says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Well, what is a miracle? By definition, a miracle is something that is extraordinary. Something that is out of the ordinary. Something that goes over and above and beyond the natural world as we experience it. So Luke says, in essence, God was doing extraordinary, extraordinary things through the Apostle Paul. Um, And certainly they were really, really extraordinary. Uh, Even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. So they were healed. And evil spirits came out of them. Uh, there's a difference there. The first one is physical healing. The second one is this sort of spiritual healing. The, the demoniacs are, are cleansed of their spirits. And note, it's not just that the people were hoping and thinking, you know, in terms of their being superstitious, that if I can grab this handkerchief from the Apostle Paul, maybe it will heal my family. It actually does heal the family. This is really happening. This is really taking place. And so this is an extra extraordinary occurrence, even for the apostolic age of pretty extraordinary occurrences. And so what explains something like this? Well, the first thing Luke wants us to note is that God is the ultimate explanation, right? God, verse 11 again, God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. Paul was just an instrument. Um, Paul wasn't even in control of what's happening. It just kind of happened. And also, he's not peddling his, you know, his clothes, his, his effects, saying, hey, you know, $20, you can have the Kleenex that I just blew my nose in, kind of thing. He's not even in charge of what's taking place here. It's just happening. Uh, so that's the first explanation. God is doing this. Paul would later explain, though, why God chose to work in this way. He does it in two places, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and then Romans 15 and verse 18. And in both, he's underscoring that God does these these crazy things to validate his apostolic ministry. 
to validate that he's a true apostle of Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. It's a sign of a true apostle. But then he says in Romans 15, verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. This is what Christ has accomplished through me, Paul says, these signs and wonders. So not only does Christ show up in Ephesus through the preaching of Paul, but but Christ is also present through these signs and through these wonders. Paul takes no credit. This is, this is proof that, that Christ is the real deal, and I'm a true messenger of him who is the real deal. That's what's happening here. God is using Paul to validate the ministry of Christ, not Paul using Christ to validate his own ministry. Look how great I am. Look how cool I am. But see, that's where the sons of Sceva got it mixed up. They got it backwards. They think, well, we could use Christ to validate our own ministry. So that's what happens in this scene. Sceva is somebody who purports to be a Jewish priest. And um, he was apparently known in that area for his ability to perform exorcisms. Something of a family business. Seven sons is, you know, Sceva and Sons Incorporated. We We can exorcise your demons, call on us. And they're seeing Paul who, who really, really, um, has this down in a way that they have never experienced before. And what's, what's the trick? What is Paul doing? What's different? He is invoking this name, Jesus. Well, maybe they could do the same. Well, of course, as good Jews, they've denied that Jesus is the Messiah. But, you know, maybe they could tweak their theology if it meant an uptick in business. Anything to help the bottom line. So they invoke the name of Jesus, but uh, we'll see what happens there in verse 15. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus that Paul proclaims. Verse 15, the demon says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who in the world are you? Who do you think you are? This demon is saying. This is very fascinating. We're told in the scriptures that the demons do know Jesus. And in one sense, they know him better than, at, than we do at this moment. Um, and yet, in their response, which is to totally ignore the attempt to be controlled by these exorcists, they are teaching us, they're teaching us a valuable lesson. Here's the lesson. Are you ready? Are you listening? It's very important. Jesus can and will do nothing for you if you do not believe in him. If you do not have Jesus by faith, you don't have him at all. And how sad that sometimes we need a demon to teach us that lesson. That's, that's what's happening in their response to the sons of Sceva. They're saying, you have no power on me. Jesus, I've heard of because, you know, I got cousin demons who've been exercised by Jesus. But you don't have Jesus. No, no, you don't have him at all. Jesus, friends, he's not a talisman. He's not a lucky charm. He's not a genie in a bottle who will just do whatever you wish. He's the savior of those who believe. Of those who believe. 
Now, seeing that we are far less spiritual today than back in Acts, uh, maybe we think people aren't doing the sort of thing that the sons of Sceva were doing, but they are. It's all around us. There's not a, a whole lot of difference between what the sons of Sceva were doing and what we call nominal Christianity. Think about that. What is nominal Christianity? It is the presumption one has that even without faith in Christ, or even an interest in Christ, if, if they go through the motions of Christianity, it will bode well for them, either in this life, but preferably in, in the next life. If there wasn't that conviction that something would turn out well for them, we wouldn't have nominal Christians. But the reason they go through the motions, the reasons they come, come to church and, and, and partake in kind of the religiosity of it all is because they think that's going to, they'll get something out of it. It's kind of like they're bartering or they're hoping that this is, this is a, 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 a card I can hold on to, you know, my, the, the, the ace in the hole and the last egg and say, hey, but I did go to church. It doesn't work that way. And you need to know that if that's why you are here today. You need to learn from the ominous warning of this text that you cannot master God or Christ, and any attempt to do so will actually result in you being mastered by evil. On the last day, Jesus will simply say to you, I do not know you. And even faithful believers, even true, regenerate Christians can fall into this trap. If you have ever prayed a prayer that starts like this, God if you will blank, and then you end that prayer with, then I will blank, then you are practicing the same sort of thing. It's the, it's the same ignorance that's at play here, um, that's at work here in the sons of Sceva, thinking that God can be manipulated, but he can't be. He can't be persuaded. He can't be bartered with. Why not? Because he is God. <laughs> this is what makes him God. Now, we, on the other hand, we can... Make no such claim about ourselves. We might think we have certain convictions that, that we would never cave on or change on. But under the right pressures, with the proper incentives, we can be bartered with and persuaded and manipulated. And so it's the starting point of, of true faith to recognize this about God, that, that, that he, is, uh, he is unable to be mastered. But that's a hard place to come to. A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, we tend to be disquieted by the thought of one who does not account to us for his being or who is responsible to no one, who is self-sufficient, self-dependent, and self-existent. To admit there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all our categories, who can't be dismissed with a name, and who will not appear in the courtroom of our judgment, nor submit to our curiosities, A.W. Tozer says, that requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him, and yet how he eludes us. The sons of Sceva, they tried to bring Christ down to their level where they could manage him, but it was an effort in futility. As though that rebuke from the demon wasn't enough to prove that, then the demoniac uh, pounces on them and sends them running uh, out of town naked and afraid. It's a fitting representation for how their fraudulent ministry had been exposed. And so at that moment, verse 17, this became known to the residents of Ephesus. The people learned that the name of Jesus isn't something uh, to be trifled with. And that inspires the final group 
that we encounter. We've, we've seen the ignorant and the adamant in, in unbelief, the fraudulent, and then finally, the penitent. That is, those who through faith forsake their old ways and submit to a new kind of lifestyle. That's in verses 17 through 19. To understand what's going on here, we need to recognize that the dark arts were a big deal in Ephesus, the occult. And even some who had converted to Christianity hadn't immediately given up that that practice. Uh, Now, that's to be expected. Perhaps you recall at, at your conversion, you didn't know everything about the Christian life right away. You learn things over time, what's expected of you in terms of maybe how you talked or, or what you watched or, or who you hung around with. Um, that, that's okay. That's called discipleship. Conversion is a one-time event that where through faith in Christ, we are taken from a domain of darkness and we're brought into the kingdom of Christ. That just happens one time and it's done. Never can be changed, never can be undone. But once we belong to the kingdom of Christ, then discipleship, it's this kind of gradual process where somebody else who's already a citizen uh, of, the, uh, of the kingdom comes alongside us and, and helps us learn what it means to, to be a part of that kingdom as well. What it looks like to, to live as a follower of Jesus. And so in Ephesus, the people through this scene were convicted that their obsession with magic and with spells... And the occult had no place now that they followed Jesus. That wasn't something they knew right away. And now they see it and they're convinced by it. Jesus, he's so much greater and more powerful than all these things. How can they keep paying lip service to these idols? And so we see their penitence takes on three steps. Look with me at verse 17. First, they extol the name of Christ. There is no true religion where Christ's name is not exalted, is not magnified, is not glorified, is not lifted high. That's where they start. Jesus is king. That's the first start of of repentance, acknowledging that Christ is king, you are not. And the second thing is in verse 18. They confess their sins. Do you see that in verse 18? Now, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. The word for divulging in the ESV is actually the same word that uh, in Greek where we get our English word angel. It comes from the same root word. So it really means they, they proclaimed it. They announced it. Remember, angels are messengers. And so they're, they're announcing their sinful practices for all to hear. Wow, could you do that? Would you be ready to do that this moment to announce before everyone the sins of your former life? What the Ephesians were doing is actually in keeping uh, with The theology of our Westminster Confession, the chapter on repentance, says this. Every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and the forsaking of those sins he will find mercy. But then it says this. So he that scandalizes his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended who then can be reconciled to him and in love receive him. So their sin was a scandal to the church of Christ. And Christ can have no affiliation with demons. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that. And moreover, their sinful practice, since it was a lifestyle, was presumably known throughout the whole city. And that's why they are willing to come and proclaim it to the whole city. Uh, Their confession is in proportion to their sin. So that means, it's important to know this, that if you 
sin against your spouse on, on Saturday night, there is no expectation that you come to church on Sunday and tell everybody about it. I hope you all took a sigh of relief there. However, if you sin against your spouse at fellowship meal, you know, cursing at them in front of everybody, we all hear it, we all see it, then you must repent before all those who witness that sin. The, the confession is in proportion to the sin. Now, even if that's what we should do, it's hard to do until we recognize what the Ephesians recognized. What did they learn? Why were they able to come forward and to divulge their practices and confess their sin? Because they saw if this king, who is Christ, who has power over the whole world, power of all these spiritual forces, if he was willing to give up that power on the cross for me, die for me, die for my sins, then I have no reason to hold anything back. My sins do not propel him further away from me. The opposite. He's drawn to me because I'm a sinner. And so my confession of that sin won't change that. No, in fact, my confession of the sin is at the same time a profession of the beauty of Christ. The, the wonder of Christ, the love of Christ. I confess my sin publicly so that everybody else knows he has forgiven me. He can forgive you too. And so they confess. There's a third thing, though, that the penitent do. We saw they extol the name of Christ. They confess their sins. But it's like declaring in words isn't enough. And so in addition, they take tangible steps to alter their behavior. And in this instance, it meant burning their books of magical spells. Verse 19 tells us that the combined value of these books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Sounds like a lot. Here are some other figures for you to consider. Uh, one scholar says that would be equal to uh, the annual income of 127 families in Ephesus. Another scholar says that is over $50 million in today's currency. They gave it up just like that. What are you willing to give up for Jesus? Are you willing for your allegiance to Christ to hurt you in your wallet? To hurt your reputation? To hurt your enjoyment? I think that might be the hardest for most of us. We cling to certain behaviors and practices that we know deep down are not compatible with our Christian faith. Our gluttony, our laziness, our pride, our pet sins. But we excuse them because we enjoy them. We like them. Now, maybe we think life would be boring without them. And so what, what would that be for you? What, what would you have to give up? Is it the friends that you hang out with? Is it the books you read? The shows you watch? The accounts you follow on Instagram? What is not compatible with the Christian faith? In closing, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And here, in verse 12, Paul talks about the importance of living in the world with simplicity. 2 Corinthians 1.12. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. John Newton, in one of his pastoral letters, commented on this verse, and he explained that, that sincerity, godly sincerity, 
primarily directs our conduct as it appears in the sight of others. But simplicity, that word Paul uses, that he lived with simplicity, primarily is, is about the frame of spirit that God sees, that appears in the sight of God. Sincerity, what others see. Simplicity, what God sees. Now, clearly, Paul's not using simplicity in, in, the, word we, or in the way we would use it in terms of being simple-minded or unsophisticated. He's talking about something that's uncomplicated, that's undivided. What does it mean for you to live an uncomplicated life before God? It means that your heart is set on him and him alone. When Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, he meant those that aren't contaminated, aren't diluted with other ingredients, just, just a pure heart, a pure stream flowing for Jesus. That's what Paul means when he talks about simplicity of heart. And to have a simple heart is the opposite of having a duplicitous heart. To be duplicitous means you are one thing in private and before God, and you're another thing in front of other people. Well, that's what was happening in Ephesus until this moment. When they said, let's divulge what we've been doing in private. Let's divulge what, what maybe we're not comfortable um, kind of talking about in church. And let's get our lives on this single track of devotion for God. To be duplicitous means you have a secret chamber in your heart where you keep all your, your bad habits and your, your bad practices and behaviors, and you know they're incompatible with your Christian behavior, but you say, this is off limits. This part of my heart is off limits to Christ. He can't touch this. That's duplicity. You can't imagine giving it up. That's not to have a simple heart or a pure heart, a heart with a single purpose, to, to love and glorify God. And this is what John Newton explains in this letter. How powerful would it be to hear that from John Newton, who was so convinced he needed to have a pure heart that he was willing to give up a lucrative trade or a lucrative, lucrative life in the slave trade business and become a proponent for abolition? Why did he do that? He made plenty of money being in the slave trade. Beyond that, a lot of Christians did it because he was convict, convinced that the scales fell off his eyes, that this is not compatible with my Christianity. I'm living a duplicitous life. And so he gives up the one gladly to follow after his Savior. Are you willing to do the same? This is how Craig Troxell describes it. He says, A heart ruled by a simplicity of love for God is not tempted to be insincere. It will have no rivals. Such a Christian feels no need to be evasive or to disguise his actions. He does not need, need to conceal his character. Why? Because his motives are of one piece and one design, whether in public or in private. He's not afraid of being found out. He is what he appears to be. Are you, dear friend, what you appear to be? Are there things you're holding on to in secret? Are you afraid of being found out? You know what to do. You, you take those things that you cannot devote to Christ and you burn them. Easily said, not easily done. But know that God honors that decision. The decision really is made for yourself. If Christ has come to you today and he has, you recognize this is the only decision to live for him. And God honors that decision. He honored it in Ephesus because it was out of the ash heap. This is what verse 20 tells us. It's out of the ash heap that the word of God grew and became powerful and prevailed and so I want you to take heart, dear Christian, as you think about whatever that might be in your life that you have to give up, and it's so hard. 
you take heart because if you have the word of Christ dwelling richly in you, it will increase, it will grow, and it will get the victory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us. We ask that you would cause it to take root in our lives, that our hearts would be changed, and that we could reflect the Ephesians in this way, that we would be willing to give up whatever it is that keeps us from you, and that we would have a devoted heart, a pure heart, that we would be simple in that sense, that we would be all for Jesus. We prayed in his name. Amen.